Every day we are bombarded by information vying for our attention, demanding our response. In this whirlwind of noise, what do we give our attention to? And among all the emails, text messages, and notifications, how can we hear the voice of God? Welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly message from Gamia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor here at GBC, and I hope and pray that you hear the invitation of the Holy Spirit as you listen to this message today. As a community of faith, this is what we are all about. People hearing and responding to the invitation of God to join in His mission to renew everything in Jesus. This week, we begin a new sermon series entitled Hearing the Invitation of God, in which we want to explore the habits of the heart that we can nurture to better hear and more courageously respond to God's invitation. In this first message, we return to a familiar passage for us at GBC to consider yet again why listening to God's invitation is such a critical spiritual practice to foster. Um, The Bible reading tonight is from John 20, 19 to 23. It's... uh titled, Jesus Appears to His Disciples. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After He said this, He showed them His hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, He breathed on them. And said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. We're going to have little videos of those uh, for the, the entire series, an opportunity for us to uh, kind of get our, get our thinking going a bit before we uh, actually engage with uh, this new series, which I'm pretty excited about, hearing the invitation of God, uh, an opportunity for us to pause. We've been going through Exodus for a while now, and uh, now we're going to shift gears, talk a little bit about uh, how we hear the invitation of God, and then kind of get back into Exodus at the end of, uh, the end of July. Uh, and uh, if, for some of you, if you've been around here for a while, you know, last couple of years in particular, you might think to yourself, I'm pretty sure like I've heard that passage before like hasn't he preached on this before and the answer is yes I should start keeping track of how many times I think that we might be up to six or seven actually over the last three or four years so uh, you know and, and it's just become it's kind of become a bit of an exodus passage for me in, in one sense you know I talk about the book of exodus and how the story is told and retold and thought about again and again and again and they keep circling around it and thinking about the imagery in different contexts and this passage kind of has become a bit of that kind of a passage for me and I think for us as a church as well and so what I want to do is I want to kind of come back to this passage and I want to explore it a little bit and I kind of help us see the connection between what this passage has to say and I think quite significantly what it means for us to be hearing the invitation of God. So if you have your Bibles with you, open it up uh, to John chapter 20. Have a bit of a look at a couple of other passages there as well. Uh, But let me give you the context if you are unfamiliar with the story. Uh, John chapter 20 verse 19 opens uh, on the night of the resurrection. So uh, Easter Sunday is the day. Uh, On uh, the Friday night before, Jesus has died. Uh, He's been in the tomb on Saturday. And by Sunday night, the disciples have heard some 
disturbing, interesting, confusing rumors, right, about where Jesus might be. They've had a pretty traumatic weekend, right? I don't know how your weekend's been. There's been, there has been, there's been worse, right? There, uh, the one that they've been following for three years has, has been executed, uh, kind of on trumped up charges. Uh, he's, he's been dead for a day and a bit, and then some women have come and said they've seen him, and the tomb is empty, and they've run to find out, and yes, the tomb's empty, and now they're in this upper room, and, and John tells us that they're afraid. That's the one, that's the one emotion that, that he draws out. And they were afraid primarily of the Jewish leaders, the same Jewish leaders who had executed Jesus on these trumped up charges. And they were no doubt fearful in part because it was fairly well known that Jesus had been saying that he was going to be raised from the dead, which meant that they had gone to the Roman governor when Jesus was executed and said, can you make sure there's a guard on the tomb to make sure that his disciples don't come in, break in, take the body and then say, oh, look, he's been raised from the dead because then it's just going to be worse. So you can imagine that the disciples were not the only people who had heard the rumor that Jesus was alive or at least that the tomb was empty. And so you can imagine that the fear that they had about being caught in the crosshairs of some kind of investigation into these rumors and whether or not they were true. But I suspect that there were more emotions going on in that room. I mean, for, for, for the disciples, there's the 11 apostles, so kind of the, 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 the 11 men that Jesus had, had drawn close to him. One had died, that was Judas. Uh, and uh, there were probably other followers of Jesus, other than the men and women who had followed him for that period of time. And they're in this room, and, and they're a little bit confused about what's happened. They don't really yet fully understand how Jesus could come back to life. I mean, that doesn't normally happen, you'd have to say, so this is strange and new. But for the 11 in particular, they're still reeling from the fact that not only was the man that they've invested three years of their life in dead and gone, but that one of their own had betrayed him. Can you imagine one of your closest mates, uh, someone that you're connected with over a particular thing betraying? Like it's just, it's ludicrous sort of stuff to, to think through. And on top of that, Jesus, if he was alive, had not yet come to see them. And I think that's interesting because the last time the disciples saw Jesus or the last time Jesus saw them, they were running away to save their own skins. Right? The last time they saw him was in the garden when they completely abandoned him when he needed them most. So you can imagine then that Jesus, they've heard the rumor, Jesus is alive. They're freaking out about the Jews. They're a little bit uncertain about where they stand now with Jesus because the last time they saw him, they denied him and ran away. They're confused about what's taking place. And it's into this hotbed of emotion that Jesus appears. And so I think it's fairly striking that the very first thing that Jesus says to them is, peace be with you. And he doesn't, he, he, and that's not like the ancient Aramaic version of G'day boys, how you going, right? Uh, this is a theological statement. In the earlier chapters when he is comforting his disciples about what's gonna take place, he says, my peace I give to you. Not the peace that the world gives, but my peace I'm giving to you. So this is a kind of a theological statement. Peace be with you, right? Peace, despite all of your fear, despite all of your anxiety, despite all of your confusion, despite all of your doubts, despite all of that, peace be with you. And then he shows them his wrists and his side, kind of the, the markers and identifiers that, yeah, that's Jesus, or at least someone who's been recently crucified. Uh, and then they're overjoyed. And then Jesus says again, peace be with you. And then he makes this remarkable statement in verse 21. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. 
Now, if you're visiting with us tonight, you probably haven't seen this yet because you haven't left the building. But as you go out the building over our front doors, we have that statement. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And for those of you who are here all the time, you probably have stopped seeing it because it's just part of the furniture now. But it's there. Because this phrase, this little statement, I think is, is incredibly foundational for who we want to try to become as a community of faith. And it's a remarkable statement that, that Jesus makes. As the Father has sent me, in the same way that the Father sent me, I am sending you. And so it begs the question, so how was Jesus sent? And so if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter five. John chapter five, about halfway through verse 16, we'll start up. Jesus has been healing people. He's been healing people on the Sabbath, which is, of course, a, a, a day where the Jews are not to do any work. And so the Jewish leaders can't quite figure out how someone who is obviously breaking the law by working on the Sabbath can still somehow have the blessing of God and be healing people. So they're all a little bit confused by the whole thing. But we're told in verse 16 of chapter five that because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. And for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. So the father had sent the son, so as the father sent me. And so Jesus is the one who basically says, I can and I will do nothing apart from what the father shows me. He's doing work and so I'm watching him, I'm taking all my cues from him, all my cues from him. But what is the work of the Father? What is God wanting to do through Jesus? And the kind of the big grand narrative of scripture is that God is seeking to restore and renew the entire world. Created good, broken, twisted, and warped by sin, and then this grand plan to restore everything ultimately in Jesus. And so that's the work that Jesus is engaged in. And then he says, Right? And that's all well and good for Jesus, isn't it? He's the son of God. He's a biblical character. He's a really good guy, obviously gifted by God, all that great stuff. He can die for the sins of the world. So that's fantastic for God to send Jesus. Sounds like the right bloke to send. And then Jesus says, I am sending you in the same way. And we go, whoa, 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 whoa. Like we get the whole God sending Jesus bit makes perfect sense. But then Jesus sending us to do the same thing kind of thing? Keep in mind who this group is. A group of men who still didn't understand who Jesus was. A group of men who had abandoned him. A group of people who were in fear and anxious for their very lives. Who simply didn't understand. And Jesus is the one who says, I'm sending you in the same way. Then he says, uh, he breathes on them back in chapter, uh, in back, back in chapter 20. Breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And the, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit is really significant because it's the Holy Spirit that's just the enabling presence of God. When Jesus began his public ministry, it was marked by his baptism and by the Holy Spirit descending upon him and remaining on him. And that's what enabled Jesus to always keep his eyes on the Father. That kept him able to, to kind of be attuned to what God was doing and to do the work of God wherever he went. 
you have your Bibles, turn to uh, John chapter 15. Because in John chapter 15, Jesus kind of gives a different kind of metaphor for our connection to him. In John chapter 15, he talks, he uses a metaphor of the vine and the branches. And in chapter 15, verse five, he says this. This is Jesus speaking. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And do you hear the parallels with chapter five? In chapter five, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. I only do what I see the Father doing. What the Father does is what I do. What the Father says is what I say. And then in chapter 15, he says of his followers, you are connected to me. Remain in me because you can't do anything apart from me. And this, 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 this ability to focus on Jesus and to hear what he is doing and to, uh, to, um, and to be involved in what he's doing, to remain in him is the work of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus says, of course, at the very end, right, he says, if you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. And this is not a... Um, I guess a high level authority that we have to do what only God can do and forgive people's sins unanimously. Nor is it just the statement that, listen, if someone hurts you, you should forgive them. This is a little bit more profound because what this reminds us is that we are being sent and involved in the the same work of Jesus. And we sang about it earlier, didn't we? We talk a lot about the significance of the forgiveness of sins, right? And we we know why, don't we? Because if we're to experience a full life, we need to be reconciled to the source of life, right? God. And so our sins and our shame and our guilt and our regret, all those things that chain us to the past stand in the way. And so we needed someone to come and to wipe that slate clean and to remake our hearts so we can be united again with God in relationship with him. It's a wonderful part of Jesus's work. But it is not the entirety of Jesus's work. When we talk about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that's a summary statement, isn't it? I mean, he did so much other stuff. He taught so um, so many other things. He was about so much more than simply just only forgiveness. It's a symbol for something much, much more. We've been going through the book of Exodus, and there's a parallel there. So we've been talking about the fact that God didn't save the people of Israel. He didn't bring them out of Egypt just because he didn't like to see a group of people oppressed. He didn't just say, listen, you're oppressed. I have a heart for you. I'm just gonna set you free, knock yourselves out. I'll watch your career with interest. He set them free because he had a purpose for them to be a living, breathing example of what it looked like to live in relationship with God and all the blessings that come from that. They were to be that group of people. That was their whole bit, set free for a purpose. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, basically takes all the Exodus imagery and says the same thing about himself. And so when we talk about the forgiveness of Jesus, we're not just talking about the fact that we're now right with God. We're also saying that we have been set apart for a purpose. We've been set apart for the same purpose. And our salvation and our sentness go together. That they're not two separate things. See, but what happens if we, only, if we only ever focus on the forgiveness? If that's the only thing, if Jesus was only out to forgive us, then here's the implication. If Jesus was only out to forgive us, then once we are forgiven, once we've said, yes, thank you, uh, I, I've, I've had enough of my guilt and enough of my shame, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take that forgiveness, thank you very much, 
then that means that Jesus has done basically everything he's going to do until we get to heaven. He takes dirty, tatty people and kind of, you know, buffs them up a little bit and then kind of places them in heaven and says, look at that. What a wonderful trophy to my compassion and grace. Which means that we're left on earth waiting for heaven. And the only thing that we have to do between now and then is to avoid people who might tarnish our halo. Which is not quite what we're called to, is it? And it's not what we've been sent to. We have been forgiven, yes. Is that important? Yes. But you know what? We've been invited into something much bigger. When Jesus first began to preach, when he burst onto the scene, he, it's interesting, he doesn't show up in Galilee in the synagogues and say to people, hey everybody, I'm here to forgive your sins. That's not his message. You know what his message was? When he first begins to preach? In fact, the summary statement of everything he talked about? The kingdom of heaven is near. A whole new way of living, a whole new way of relating, a whole new way of being. It is about to break into the world and it's gonna shatter everything. It wasn't until much, much later on that he actually began talking about forgiveness. Because what he was on about primarily was about, well, the kingdom. And we need to be forgiven to enter into the kingdom of God in order that we might be sent out into the world again. That's the double movement that Jesus is always involved in. But there, here are the implications for us. We can't separate those two things. We can't just say yes to Jesus, I'll, thank you, I'll, I'd like to be forgiven. I'm not so sure about the other part. Because they go together. And how many of you have interviewed for a job? Yeah, most of you. How many of you have trialed for like a rep team or a, some, sort of, some sort of a representative thing? A few of you? Yeah, okay. So you know the deal, right? You go for an interview uh, and you're trying to get a job and they, you know, they interview you, you might get to the second interview and then they offer you the job or you trial for the representative team and you go through a couple of trials and they offer you a spot. Now, when they offer you the job or they offer you the spot, you are under no obligation to accept, are you? You don't have to take that. You can kind of say, listen, I, you know, I'm glad I made the team. I am pretty good, but uh, I don't think that I want to take the spot up anymore. We can't afford it. We're going on holidays, whatever the reason might be. Thank you very much for the job offer, but I've actually got a better offer someplace else, whatever. But as soon as you accept the job offer, as soon as you accept the position on the team, there are certain expectations, aren't there? Such as you'll show up for work, right? And if you say, hey, I made the representative team, but I never go to training and I haven't paid my fees and I don't wear the uniform and I'm not attending the tournament, you're not on the team. Do you see the parallel? When we say yes to Jesus, we're not just saying, hey, thanks so much for forgiving me. That's fantastic. I can't wait for heaven. We're also saying, I accept my spot on the team. Now, here, here's the remarkable thing. You know, I've talked about the disciples. It's kind of ragtag group of people. They're not the people that I think we would have chosen or selected. They're not the people that you think, yeah, those are the winners who are gonna make a, a wonderful new religious movement. But you know, we talk quite a bit about um, how you can begin to follow Jesus before you placed your faith in him. Right? And it's something we talk quite a bit about. I, I routinely go back to Matthew chapter four, uh, where Jesus calls his disciples, or the people who will be his disciples, and he says, follow me. 
And he says, follow me. And he doesn't, it's, it's remarkable, he doesn't ask them before you start following me, do you believe that I'm the son of God? Like, do you really believe that or not? Because we, we gotta get that out of the way right away. No, he just says, follow me. Doesn't demand anything about their faith. He doesn't give them a pop quiz and say, here, here's a copy of the Old Testament. Can you please circle at least five passages that point clearly to me? And he doesn't demand that they change their life. He doesn't demand anything changes at all. He simply invites them, follow me. Isn't that remarkable? And so these men begin to follow Jesus and what happens to them is what happens to us as we begin to follow Jesus, as they begin to realize who Jesus is and they begin to come to grips with the implications, the changes in their life that will come from following him and eventually they come to a crisis of faith where they have to make a decision about what they believe about Jesus. But you can begin to follow him before you believe. Here's the remarkable thing. In Mark's gospel, there's this really critical moment in the gospel. About halfway through chapter eight, uh, Jesus and his disciples have been kind of wandering around for, I don't know, a couple years at least. And Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who's everyone talking about? When they talk about me, how do they talk about me? And they say, well, listen, you know, the people are saying that you're like Elijah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, or like John the Baptist, like you're a really significant figure that someone that God's using. It's pretty remarkable stuff. And Jesus says, that's great. Who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, he says, well, you're, you're, the, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're, you're the one sent by God. And Jesus goes, absolutely right. And begins to teach the disciples that the Messiah has to die. And the disciples can't get their head around that. That doesn't make any sense at all. How can God's chosen one have to die? That makes no sense. So he's still teaching them. You want to know when Jesus first sends his disciples out? It's several chapters before Peter has even begun to have an inkling about who Jesus is. He sends them out two by two and says, preach the kingdom of God, cast out demons in my name and heal the sick. And if someone in the crowd had asked a question, they said, excuse me, who is Jesus? The disciples would have been like, that's a great question. <laughs> we think he's, he's a prophet of some sort, obviously blessed by God. We're still working out the details. Can I get your contact? I'll give you a call when we figure it all out. Isn't that bizarre? And so if you are here and you are following Jesus and you don't yet know whether or not you have faith, can I also just encourage you to ask Jesus where he might want to send you? Because as we hope and pray, you will get to a point where you will place your faith in Jesus. And when you do so, you're not just saying yes to forgiveness and a new start. You're saying, yes, I accept my position on the team. And who knows what God might do through you as you begin to follow Jesus. He did some pretty remarkable stuff through his disciples before they really had their head in the game. Maybe you've got a friend. Um, who you know really, who you know for a long, long time. Uh, maybe, maybe it's a family member or a cousin, or whatever it might be, a colleague perhaps at work. And you know them so well, you know them so well that when you get together, you, you can kind of tell where they're going before they get there. You can finish each other's sentences, that kind of a friend. You have someone like that? Someone who you just know really well and you're like, oh, I know where you're going with that. And when you work with someone like that, it's fantastic, right? Because you're problem solving and you're, you're kind of buzzing off each other and there's a synergy and there's energy in it as you kind of say, what about this? Oh yeah, what about that? Oh, I know where you're going with that and off you go, right? 
It's this amazing moment. Perhaps you've seen or you've played sport uh, where you've seen that kind of chemistry at work on, 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 the, on the pitch or the field or the ice rink, right? Whatever it might be, right? Where people, they just know intuitively where the other players are gonna be and they make the right play and there's just this unbelievable capacity to get where people are going. You ever you experienced that kind of thing? Do we have that kind of chemistry with God? If God appeared to you tonight and said, I have something to tell you, and he began to tell you, would you be able to go, oh, I know where you're going with this? Like theologically, I don't know how that's gonna work, but you know, you know what I'm getting at. Do, do we know God? Do we have enough chemistry with God? Do we know him so well that we're like, you know what? I know where you're going with this thing. I like it. This could be really good. I'm in. Can we finish God's sentences? Do we have that kind of chemistry with him? And ultimately, that's what this series is about. Because if we have only been forgiven and we're just kind of being polished up and waiting for heaven, then really listening to God is kind of optional. Jesus has already done the main work and we just kind of have to float through life, kind of being nice and good until we get to heaven. But if in fact, by saying yes to forgiveness, we have also said yes, we'll take up the commission and Jesus is sending us into the world and he's sending us places where he is continuing his work of renewal and restoration, then listening out for him, knowing him so that we can finish his sentences becomes incredibly important. And so this series is all about the skills and the attitudes and the practices of the heart that we can nurture so that we can become better attuned with God, better attuned with the Holy Spirit so that we can finish his sentences, so that we know where he's at work and we can begin to get involved. Remember uh, years ago uh, when we first arrived or shortly after we'd arrived in Australia, I was watching uh, Rugby Union with a friend of mine I was a relatively new, I wouldn't say convert, but I was relatively new to the sport, so I understood what was going on, broadly speaking. Uh, but uh, the friend that I was watching with, he knew the game. He'd played it for a long time, played it at quite a high level as well. And so we were watching this game one day. I don't remember exactly what happened, but it was something like this. There's, you've watched Rugby Union. There's a big pile of men on the field. I can't see the ball anywhere, right? And they've been doing this for a while, and, and I'm, I'm just watching, and my friend goes, oh, it is on. And I'm like, <laughs> you can't see the ball. They're just stomping on each other, trying to get the ball. There's nothing happening. And then what happened? The ball comes out, bang, 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 try in the corner. I was like, how did you do that? <laughs> and it's simple, isn't it? He was so familiar with the patterns of the game, so familiar with how it worked, so, so in, in the culture of the game that he saw what I, who was new to the game, would never have seen. What would happen if we became a people of God who were so attuned, so deeply ingrained in the patterns of God's behavior that we could see it happening early? What if we could look out at the world around us and go, oh, it is on. Did you see that? Did you see the move of the Holy Spirit right there? It just started to unfold. And people around us going, what are you talking about? And then we just watch it blossom. 
Wouldn't that be remarkable if we as the people of God were, we were so attuned to what God was doing and so deeply ingrained in the patterns of his behavior that we could finish his sentences, we could finish his actions and we could identify it really, really early where we're no longer reacting to what God's doing, going, wow, that was amazing, what do I do now? But we're already there because, well, we saw this coming, it is on. And you know what? Through Jesus and the empowerment of the Spirit, it is on. It's on. It's a statement of faith, isn't it? Because most of the time when we look out at the world, all we see is a big pile of mess, don't we? And people stomping on one another trying to find the ball. It takes faith to look at our world and say, no, I believe that there's something better. And it's not gonna come through better government, although God bless us with better government. It's not gonna come through better policy, though God bless us with better policy. It's not gonna come through education, though God bless us with education. It's gonna come through this man, Jesus and his determination to restore and renew the world. And as the Father sent him, he has sent you. So as you leave tonight, notice the quote above the door. Jesus wants to tell you something before you go. It's pretty exciting, isn't it? And so we're gonna take some time over these six weeks to try, to try to get our heads around, get our hearts around. What's the response that, uh, the things that we can begin to do so that our eyes are ever more open and our ears are ever more alert and our heart is ever more soft to the activity of God in our world. And will you say yes to Jesus tonight? Will you say yes, I accept the commission and you may still not believe him you may still not have all the ducks lined up. You may still not know what to make of it, but will you say yes to Jesus tonight? And if you have placed your faith in him, will you say yes? And then keep your eyes open because it is on. What kind of chemistry do we have with God? How familiar are we with his patterns of behavior? Can we see it as soon as it begins to unfold? I hope you join us in the weeks to come as we explore the habits of the heart that we can nurture in order to attune ourselves to the invitation that God extends to each of us. We'd love to hear from you as you hear and respond to the invitation of God. You can find us on Facebook or visit our website at gaimiabaptist.org.au. May your eyes and ears be open and your heart soft to the invitation of the Spirit to join in God's renewing work in Jesus. God bless.